The following is for information purposes only and should not be used as the basis of an investment decision. This is not investment advice. This episode is made possible by Progressive Equity Research, providing freely available, engaging investment research and opportunities to hear from a wide range of small and mid-cap UK listed companies. For today's episode, David Seaman of Alpha Signy joins me for a conversation with James Wilson, fund manager of the Hugin Fund. The Hugin Fund applies the value investing principles of the wider Phoenix Asset Management team to international markets. However, James has his own very distinctive approach to investing. David and I have attended the Phoenix Annual Investor Meetings together for the last couple of years and have been impressed by James's presentations of his top picks. Last year, a French champagne house, Laurent Perrier, and this year's US onshore gas producer, CNX. James talks about his investment philosophy, why he seeks to invest in leaders rather than managers, and the difference leaders can have on their organisations. He gives us insights into what he regards as hidden value in three companies, covering the French luxury goods industry, the US natural gas market, and the UK floor coverings market. James dives into his holdings in Laurent Perrier, CNX, and the UK's Likewise Group. James leaves few stones unturned in his approach to getting insight and understanding of the companies he invests in. He gives us a masterclass in value investing and the importance of doing the work and the insights it can yield. I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope you do too. Hi, James, and thanks for joining us today. Can we just start by finding out a bit about you and how you came to join Phoenix Asset Management? I suppose I sort of stumbled into investment management post-university because I was kind of lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I studied engineering, but I didn't want to do that. But I continued doing it because I was the last year that had £1,000 tuition fees. So I did that. I ended up working for the investment arm of a big sleepy life pension business. In that kind of business, the investments are managed in a very conventional way, super conventional structures that kind of stop you from taking big positions and investing in a counter-cyclical way. But I didn't know any different at that stage, and I thought this was the way forward until I started working with a chap called Graham Shercor. So Graham Shercor actually was now at Phoenix, and he's been a value investor since he was, uh, I think, early teens was the first time he made his first investment. Anyway, he shoved a load of books under my nose. Uh, I thought they were great. And when you sort of discover value investing in the guise of Buffett and Graham and Munger, everything else is wrong. And so all this conventional stuff that was happening around me, the work I was doing was decreasingly useful to the people I was working for. And so I spent a couple of years really looking for the right place. And because I was so purist in my views of how things should be done, you realize when you start looking, there aren't many places that do it properly. One day I got a call from a recruiter who I told multiple times I don't want to work for a hedge fund. And he said, hey, I've got this hedge fund called Phoenix. Do you want to go for an interview there? Something nudged me to go and have a look at the website. And I read the primer. Of course, I realized the recruiter had completely misunderstood what it was and he'd stumbled upon the perfect place for me. (laughs) Because this recruiter had uh, messed up a few of the introductions for me, I immediately just picked up the phone and Steve picked up the phone on the other end. And I sort of said, I really want to come and speak to you. A recruiter might phone you about me and he doesn't understand me. (laughs) So can I send you a covering letter and a CV directly 
in the next hour or so. And he said, yes, no problem. And I managed to get in the door, have a, have a first interview and realized that they were incredibly sort of apprehensive about even speaking to me because they didn't want someone from the other side of the fence who had all the bad habits of the sort of conventional industry. They must have been over the course of maybe, I think it was five times I had to go back there to try and convince them that I wasn't all bad. <laughs> and the final interview was a sort of culmination of Gary's expertise in psychology, where he was trying to break me down and irritate me and see what I'm really like. Um, and that lasted about four and a half hours. <laughs> so anyway, after jumping through the hoops and trying to convince them. So they really them that, tried to break you. Yeah, yeah. And that's really important with a small business, especially the way we think about the very long term. We hire for life, really. We're very protective of our culture. You mentioned the books that Graham had passed on to you. Can you just share with us one or two or which of the books that really gave you that light bulb moment of, ah, oh, this is it? Well, the one for me was The Warren Buffett Way by Robert Hagstrom. I think it was the second okay. edition he gave me. Yeah. It's just so eloquent. Buy something for less than it's worth. So eloquent and rooted in reality and simple maths that it was almost impossible to ignore compared to all the noise that was happening around me, sell-side research and quarterly earnings and trying to predict what the earnings would be, trying to predict what the market would think of the earnings. How do you do that? Of course you can't. It's just a flim-flam. What you can do is understand the value of something if you carefully approach the research and try and be as objective as you can. So you've joined this value investors cult called Phoenix Asset Management. <laughs> you've launched your own fund. Can you just share with us your process and how it differs and maybe complements those of other funds and other managers at Phoenix? Really, what you need is a framework of principles that stops you from doing really dumb stuff. But I kind of said to the partners, look, I think our process is awesome. And I think it, we can apply it overseas in a careful and methodical way and expand our circle of competence. And hey, guess what? The prize is huge by going overseas because you even just going over to America, you expand the number of stocks you could invest in by 12 to 14 times, depending on how you cut the pink sheets. <laughs> and if we apply our process overseas, we should have a higher number of investable ideas per unit time, which should increase our performance, which is really what everything comes back to at Phoenix. We're not asset gatherers. We have closed in the past, but we're really focused on doing the right job for the people who have backed us for the long term. You know, I wrote some of the documents which you have to from a regulatory perspective which say what it's going to do and i included things like it's going to have 10 to 15 stocks and it's going to be quite concentrated and may hold loads of cash at certain times and then it's been an experiment to see can i apply our process overseas to try and expand our investable universe and, and ultimately get higher returns james you might not remember this but uh, we have actually met before quite a few years ago now at uh, hornby agm in margate I know you've had several non-exec positions, and since then, I think you've gone on to sit on Stanley Gibbons, Dignity, and Jeremy tells me also Silverwood. So that's not a typical set of experiences for a fund manager. I'm sure it's been very interesting, but how has that experience informed your current thinking and your own thought process? I suppose it's helped me understand the importance of management more. A lot of the theory you read in the best held ideas of understanding businesses, I would say that they kind of know due to say bet on the, the horse, not on the jockey. Underlying, I suppose, I was sort of plotting that course as I was looking at businesses and I wasn't thinking about the management enough. So when I approach these board positions, I approach them as a unnecessarily obsessive analyst. I don't just go and sit there and read the board packs or as some people do, pretend to read the board packs. I say, give me everything in its raw form 
I'd like to make my own mind up about this business. And then once I've been through all that, I go out and see the business through customers' eyes. You know, I mystery shop things. For Hornby, I spend time in South China going around the various manufacturers. I kind of build up this much greater understanding of the business than I would be able to outside. And I do that so I can hold management to account. I see it. The role of a non-exec is to really challenge management to say, are you really doing the right thing here? Because I've been outside the board pack and I know that this is actually happening, not what you told us is happening. Some people don't like that, but the right people do. And in fact, the very best people, no matter how hard you try to challenge in a friendly way and to add some insight. So I suppose seeing this sort of dichotomy of awesome managers who I would actually not call managers, I call them leaders because they actually inspire people because they're so good. And people who, let's be kind about it, are not so good. And seeing how that sort of perpetuates a culture of performance throughout a business made me realize, oh my goodness, there's a whole bunch of businesses I may have discarded because I failed to recognize how wonderful management applied over a long period of time can give them a competitive edge. When you're not an insider, when you're not on the board, how you go about assessing the quality of the leadership or the trustworthiness, which you state is an important part of, of what you're looking for. To some people, including me, it's more fun when you're on the outside because it's more challenging. It's a more difficult puzzle to solve. You've got to be more inventive about the ways you acquire useful information and synthesize it from noise. So for example, if I was on the, I'm not on the board of Dignity anymore, but when I was on the board, one of the first things I did is I just said, right, I'm going to go around 100 branches. I'm going to speak to all the people that liaise with our customers. I want to know what they think. I could walk in and I could say, I'm on the board. I'm on your team. You can call up the CEO. I've got access. Just tell me the truth. You know, what's really going on here? That's easy. You can build a, a picture really quickly about what's really going on, the difficulties they face, and most importantly, how you can help them at the board level. But when you're on the outside, you've got a mystery shop. You've got to go in and you've got to pretend to be a customer. If you walk in there and say, I'm a shareholder, tell me what's going on, they'll immediately lock up and they won't tell you anything. You can do what everyone else does, which is sit behind their screen and Google a few things and, and think because you've got to the third search page, you're doing some research. But actually, everyone else is doing that, so you, you won't get any insight from doing that. You've got to get out there, like I said, you've got to see the business through customer's eye and see what insight you scuttle, but as Phil Fisher would call it, you can pick up by doing that. How do you guard against it becoming anecdata and drawing sort of false confidence from some of these uh, interactions? You need to corroborate and you need to sort of cross-pollinate different bits you get. There's kind of a craft that you develop, knowing when you need like four or five different verifications of the same piece of information and knowing where to look for it. And sometimes when to use numbers to verify anecdotal stuff. I found that you know, it can feed to your desire to fool yourself, if you like. So in response there, and it sounds this is a consistent theme in your writing and in speaking to you now, your solution is to do more work. The doing more work makes me feel better. But I think the real solution that I've come to is to find management teams you can trust. So if you think about how difficult it is to figure out what's going on in a business when management are trying to paint a picture versus a manager that says, this is how it really is. This is how it really is, warts and all. That's huge. I think people underappreciate that. But also the ways that things can go wrong with really, really, really good leadership who are aligned and who care about the business are much less than with conventional management who just want to push the figures for two years and move on to a, another company with a bigger market cap. You mentioned earlier you target 10 to 15 holdings, which most conventional fund managers and investors in funds would consider that pretty abnormally high level of concentration. Given the work you do, once you become a shareholder, I guess it's little surprise, but is there a magic behind that 10 to 15 
holding number? Of course, the overarching aim here is not to pretend that this is some sort of precise science. The job is judgment under uncertainty, and I just have to try and remain as rational and as objective at all times as possible and just put the largest weights in the highest return, lowest risk opportunities. That's it. I'll just try and do the smart thing at the smart time as much as a person like me can do that. One of the shifts I've had, and this may scare you if you think 10 to 15 positions is concentrated, is... Actually, the investors I look up to, the truly wonderful long-term investors that I look up to, large and small, well-known and not known at all, really their track record is defined by three or four big insights about the world that people either ignore or just don't know because they're not smart enough to figure it out, which then lead to maybe five to 10 wonderful investments over an entire career. And so really, when you examine the maths of the track record, the game was about how much they were able to put into those really, really special opportunities. And actually, if you think about it like that, the amazing mix of variables that have gone into the current economic storm, there may be situations where I have sort of career-defining opportunities and I want to be able to grasp them with both hands. One of the, uh, I think, challenges to the logic that you just set out is that we analyze things that have happened ex post, but we have to make decisions ex ante and, and uh, to know with confidence ahead of the event that you have one of those rare career-defining insights, I think is a very uh, difficult question to answer. There's an element of these things, which I think you would agree with from what you've just said, is, is saving you from yourself in terms of having some guardrails in place. Completely valid point. And I suppose when you think about this, if you go, well, actually, you're going to take larger positions, maybe you need more control around these large positions. So you get to 10% and something, and then, you know, I'm always early. So I get to 10% and then it halves. Then I go to 15% after it halves again. (laughs) And then it halves again. In order to go there, maybe I need extra controls around that final sort of bullet you fire at the opportunity. So I'm thinking about checklists. And just avoiding the most obvious mistakes at what can be quite an emotional time when you're investing in something. We noted with interest that you sold the position that you had in Berkshire Hathaway, for example. And given that the way that you set out your origin story, you know, that's quite notable, I think, in terms of your evolution as an investor. So the choice of subsequent new investments, should we consider that you sort of finding your way with your own methodology? Where do you see it evolving further? It is with a heavy heart that I don't hold shares in, in Berkshire Hathaway anymore. But I know that's what Warren would want me to do if I could invest in something that is trading at less than half of its liquidation value and is probably worth five times what I'm paying for it. I think selling Berkshire Hathaway quite far above book value to buy something which is, as I said, a fraction of orderly liquidation value is a good trade. But the interesting thing with selling, and selling isn't talked about enough and it's a really interesting discipline, is the way that we think about value and and how it will appear over time. I have to wait for a certain vintage of ideas to come through to analyze them correctly. So I'm really looking forward to, assuming my investors let me get to my 10th anniversary, going back and doing a sort of post-mortem on, these are the things I sold. These were the uses of capital. This is why I was wrong. So I'm yet to see a lot of the ideas that I've sold mature into either a mistake or a success. You're constantly building a list of companies that you wish to own at the right price. How often are you adding to that list? Oh, it's a really difficult question to answer. Sometimes I'll have a business that is operates in the same industry as something I've studied before or I have in the fund and something I've sort of immersed myself in for many, many years. 
because I know what to look for. I already have the background in my head and I've probably watched that business as a competitor anyway. I can just whiz through 20, 30 years of accounts in a week, figure it out and make a decision on it very quickly. So if, if everything was like that, I could probably add stuff to the investable universe, not necessarily the fund because the price is always the last bit on a weekly basis. I did some work on the graphite electrodes that go into electric arc furnaces. So that as a brand new industry to me, steel creation, the whole supply chain, <laughs> and then how this sort of niche supplier, which had a monopoly in some places, fits into that and their pricing power, just brand new. It took me probably five months just to get to a point where I could pick up the accounts and understand what was going on. We both were enamored with your pitch on Laurent Perrier about a year ago at the Phoenix investor meeting. I love your description that you wrote about, I think, in one of your letters that you thought champagne as a whole was a post-truth reality. Just tell us about your investment case on Laurent Perrier. It was a great call last year. And just maybe update us a bit on it. That was a new industry for me. So there's this whole background body of work. The nugget of the idea came from thinking, well, look, there's this huge dislocation in demand in all sorts of different places from COVID. And it seemed like a lot of developed economies were banning fun things. Fun things like weddings and celebrations weren't really happening en masse. But there are some industries where you have catch up. So I thought, well, if there's a load of weddings, for example, being stored up, because they're going to happen. Of course, some people may back out of it, and that's very sad. But most people, if they're going to get married and they can't get married in the COVID year, they'll kick it to the next year and there'll be this huge deluge of celebrations. And so you don't lose the demand, it just gets shuffled into the next year. And the year in which you're not allowed to celebrate, it looks terrible because people might tell. Well, obviously, I'm generalizing here. Mr. Market tends to be quite myopic. I thought maybe some of the champagne producers might have a terrible year. So when I go rooting around, see if there's anything investable there. So in investigating the history, it's not actually difficult to realize that a lot of the principles on which the product and the brands are founded are kind of myths, and they're just made up, and then people have accepted them for a couple of hundred years. So they're part of our culture, and they're passed down between generations. And then the deeper you get into it, you see some of the brands are based on complete lies. So Dom Perignon is one of the sort of apex brands, it's part of LVMH. And LVMH actually owned the Abbey de Hortvilliers. My French isn't very good, so I probably butchered that pronunciation. They owned the, the Abbey where Dom Perignon was during his time there. And they've got a statue to him, and the statue has him standing up with a glass of champagne saying, I'm tasting the stars, which is a sort of myth of, of champagne. It was invented by him there, and that's what he said when he invented it. But actually, you can get the records for Hortvilliers Abbey because they were meticulous about their accounting there for some reason, I don't know. And while Dom Perignon was the cellar master there, there was no fizzy wine produced. There was some bottled wine, but it wasn't fizzy. The myth about Dom Perrier was fabricated by Dom Grosshard, who was the treasurer there 100 years after Dom Perignon died. In the sort of early 20th century, the little sort of cartel that formed around Champagne to protect the designation and restrict the supply, they sort of resurrected this myth and created this global advertising campaign around Dom Perignon. And, and it is quite exciting to think that some blind monk created this, and it's now a sort of globally accepted product for celebrations. And then, of course, the wonderful machine of, of myth embellishment that is LVMH bought the brand and has turned, it's turned it into probably the most valuable champagne brand in the world. So I suppose I kept stumbling across all these complete fabrications effectively. But then I realized it doesn't matter what really matters is what humans do in a predictable way. And what humans do in a predictable way is they buy premium champagne for gifts and important celebrations. And then there's all this positive reinforcement around it. 
Coca-Cola makes sure that there's no advertisements on the route of a state funeral because they don't want to be associated with negative things. And similarly, they'll be right by Usain Bolt when he wins the 100 meters at the Olympics because they know that the power of positive reinforcement is really quite valuable. And champagne kind of gets it for free if you think about it. A lot of Western cultures have this way of weaving it into the most wonderful moments in their life. Without realizing it, you associate champagne with wonderful times. It probably doesn't hurt it that it contains alcohol and lots of sugar, which are both chemically addictive. So there's kind of this really interesting And the uh, bubbles, origin. which carry it to the bloodstream quicker, I believe, as well. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Or maybe that's a myth. Have you done the biochemistry on that? I haven't. Well, <laughs> it's my go-to. If I'm cooking and people are coming around, the way to make sure they don't focus on the food is to get a glass of champagne in their hand as soon as they walk through the door because they don't yeah. care after this at least after the second one so. there you go another example of how it just forms a part of our um, cultural habits you could reveal all of these myths to the public in an expose and it wouldn't make any difference what a Absolutely. wonderful point to make because i have had so many people come to me after that and said i've just bought a case of lauren perrier rosé i love this stuff <laughs> i just completely glossed over it other various other investments I had a position in Richemont. The luxury goods space is just an amazing, amazing place to make money. There's just so much pricing power there because it takes advantage of our predictably irrational nature. And that's really the game here. You're not trying to figure out what's the rational thing to do and what people should do. You're trying to figure out what customers do in a very predictable way over and over again across very long time periods. One of the really nice things to start an investment with is, is knowing that you could fire everybody close everything down and in a fire sale, make more than your buying price back. So actual liquidation value, not the pretend liquidation value that auditors will give you, the actual fire sale value. Could you make money even if that happened? Then you're kind of in for free almost, aren't you? In for a profit and then probably you'll make a lot of money if it's a continuing operation. So I thought, well, what's in that balance sheet? Because sometimes you get given ideas because it's difficult to figure things out from the regulatory reporting. So the reporting is not great. This is a family business that just happens to be in the public domain, tiny free flow, hardly any shares trade. They don't really put much effort into the investor relations. I managed to find a whole bunch of sort of dusty old champagne books because it's obviously a very popular place to do work and to understand and travel around and go and look around the cellars. Quite often, you'll find those little useful data points about production rates and seller storage and what the different brands are accumulating in their cellars from reading these sort of fussy old books by people who've got a wonderful lifestyle and can go around vineyards looking at these kinds of things. And so if you kind of triangulate all the data in those books about the brands and the vineyards that Lauren Perrier own, then you can figure out roughly speaking how many bottles they've got and how it's spread between the different brands, some of which command enormous pricing premiums. So you've got to remember that they own brands like Salon Le Mesnil, which is one of the most expensive champagne brands in the world. For example, last year, the, I think it was their 2006 vintage, was the best performing vintage in not just the champagne index, all the fine wines index. They took the price of a case from 5,000 euros to 12,000 euros. And guess what happened? The demand spiked after they more than doubled the price. <laughs> It sort of shows you that within Lauren Perrier, it's not just the 45 quid bottle that you see in the supermarket. They do some of that and they do that at select partners, select supermarkets that they control very carefully. But really what the business has been focused on for the last sort of three or four decades is premiumization. Now, premiumization in a business like this depends on vintage. So you can't just say we're going to produce vintage champagnes. You've got to start 20, 30 years ago and start building those stocks up. The beauty of it, it doesn't 
cost you any more to make the 5,000 bottle of champagne versus the 40 quid bottle of champagne. All you had to do is store it for longer and change the chemistry slightly or use different grapes. They've added about 200 million euros of inventory, or their daughters who run it now, it's just third generation, 200 million euros of inventory over the last 12 years, but the sales haven't really gone anywhere. So what they're doing is they're stocking up on vintages, which they're slowly releasing to the public, whose prices go up way ahead of inflation. So the counting rules are you only have to hold your inventory at the lower of cost or realizable value. So they've got a whole bunch of very, very rare very, very high-priced vintage champagne in their books at cost when it's selling to market at 100 times cost. It's the reverse problem of Silicon Valley Bank, really, isn't it? Let's not compare those two businesses. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Held to maturity or available for sale. So I think all three of us probably have quite a similar focus on sort of long-term value. I'm not denying that at all, but I'm going to push back a bit on on your dismissal of the risk of something overriding. I mean, if someone were to have bought shares at the recent high of 130, for example, I mean, they may see a very low return on an investment. So the price you pay... I think does matter. And there are some signals. I thought that, for example, that premium story, which has been very reliable. I mean, you can really see it. The evidence is there in the numbers, the mix, the premium mix. It dropped last year or in in the financial year 2022, which doesn't look to me like a rush of the more mainstream champagne consumer restocking. I mean, I think we have to do all things if we're not going to deploy capital at times when it's not going to earn a competitive a return, or perhaps just much less of a return than we may find with you know, the competing investment. So opportunity cost, absolutely a valid criticism. If you've got something which has better upside, better downside protection, then you should absolutely go with that. In terms of the numbers, so yes, there was this sort of hollowing out of demand, and then there's been this restock, which you expect, that's just noise. And I expect them to get back to a normal cadence, which will be lower than where we are now, just with some underlying mix and price inflation, which will probably be helpful. But really, my thesis is based on a very, very long-term view that they're yet to truly realize the value in the strategy they started 30 or 40 years ago under Bernard, who took over from his mom. And if you think about, in the most extreme example, imagine we started up a whiskey distillery because we wanted to compete with Diageo's vintages. For the first 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, you wouldn't have any revenue at all, but yet you'd have enormous amounts of value to come. And so that's the way I think about Laurent Perrier. People haven't really realized if you value it off current earnings, whether it's a slightly higher year or a slightly lower year, you're ignoring what's happened to the business and the the gigantic amount of value that's stored up in a very patient strategy of premiumization. But you went from last year, from talking about champagne investor meeting to this year, to your largest holding then, I guess your largest current holding now, which is a North American gas producer, a commodity business in an industry that's hardly known for its prudent capital allocation. Talk about extremes. How do you square that? Could you just talk a little bit about CNX and how it fits? I think you've got to say, what I'm going to look for is the highest risk adjusted returns I can find. And I'll go wherever I need to, to find them, whether that's visiting funeral homes or it's pulling regulatory data on individual wells in the Appalachian region. That's what I'm going to do because that's what my investors want me to do. Where is everybody else ignoring? Is it possible that most of my competitors are ignoring some value because they're all just convinced it's uninvestable? 
I start off with the hypothesis that maybe there's hidden value in places other people aren't looking, and that historically has been a good way to start some of your searches. Always assumed that oil and gas businesses, exploration and production businesses are completely uninvestable. And with the current sort of shift or press suggested shift to, and certainly plenty of ideology around environmental generation of energy and how terrible hydrocarbons are, I've always sort of fallen into the camp of, well, just don't bother looking. There couldn't possibly be anything of value to society or my investors there. So what I wanted to do was, at least in the first instance, pick an area where I could potentially understand it and potentially might be investable. The most obvious area for further study was natural gas. And sort of the more I got into it, the more I realized it's an incredibly versatile molecule. I don't want to go through all the different uses of it, but probably the most important one or the most important realization was that two-thirds of natural gas is used for industrial purposes, sort of chemical feedstocks for which we have no substitute for stuff that's vital to our quality of life for industries like medicine and chemicals. But then the biggest use of it is actually for nitrogen-based fertilizers. So if you were to just completely withdraw nitrogen-based fertilizers, you'd have a few hundred million people that would starve to death. You'd probably have a couple of world wars started as a result of it. And then a couple of billion people would be sort of shuffled into food poverty. So it's it's really, really important resource. I don't want to go into all the details, but it's a really, really important part of our transition energy infrastructure. So you can use a mixture of hydrogen and natural gas in combined cycle gas power stations, which are actually the most efficient power stations and easily cycled on and off to perform sort of backup duties for the intermittent wind and solar that seems to be pervading a lot of grids these days. And so I thought, well, natural gas is interesting. It seems like it's sort of vital to our quality of life. It's, it's great transition fuel. It has half the carbon intensity of all the other hydrocarbons. And I thought, well, is there an area of supply and demand where I can understand it so I can kind of try and figure out how all the businesses suppliers fit and perhaps what the pricing outlook might be for over the very long term. I'm not trying to predict short-term pricing. I realized that in the US, there's kind of a sealed system of supply and demand because there aren't any pipelines that go across the Pacific or the Atlantic. You've got to put it on a big liquefied natural gas tanker. In order to get it onto the tanker in a uh, safe form, you have to supercool it down to about one six hundredth of the size of what it is at room temperature. And then you've got to regas it as you get to a port, which can, can do that. So that costs a reasonable amount of money because it takes a lot of energy. So it costs about $4 per thousand cubic feet of gas. So in the US, they produce and consume gas on a wholesale basis, about $3 per thousand cubic feet. So it's cheaper at wholesale in the US than it is to transport it in, which means that the US largely operates independently of all the other suppliers. So it's kind of a microcosm of supply and demand that I thought that even my, my sort of couple of brain cells could understand. So I thought, okay, well, I've got a, a resource which seems vital to our quality of life. I've got a, a place where I think I can understand the supply and demand because it's sort of simple enough. What's going on here? What's going on in the US? I then got into studying the horizontal multi-stage fracturing, which sort of induced a couple of shale booms in the US and all sorts of bubble type disastrous financial consequences for investors, almost like the sort of gold rush where you had a load of liars standing next to holes in the ground, pointing at them saying, giving me money. (laughs) And so it was fascinating to watch that all play out and watch how some of my favorite investors have made money shorting shale producers. America has become self-sufficient in energy as a result of the technological development of horizontal drilling and shale fracking. Yes, precisely. It's something we should teach in our schools, how important energy is to our security and quality of life and where where we get it from. I'm effectively still a child. So I had to read about the sort of period in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, where America was panicking about their energy security, making all these Faustian bargains with Middle Eastern producers. And then the shale revolution came along. And the US now on a natural gas basis, they produce more than Russia did at its peak. 
They produce more than Iran and Qatar combined. They are a petro-state when you look at it. Resources are abundant. They've got decades of supply in the way that we think about extracting them now. So I thought, okay, I got to this stage and I thought, well, how can I ever know where the price is going to be? And I suppose there's a gravitational pull towards the cost to get it out of the ground, right? If you can figure out what the cost curve looks like, then you know there's a sort of range between which those producers that produce the gas at that certain cost will be able to supply demand. And so it'll sort of bounce around with enormous amounts of volatility between a certain range. So if you sort of backtest 37 years of gas prices in the US and you look specifically at the shale gas boom, which really sort of kicked off in 2010, during that time to now, you've had this abundant oversupply, ridiculous yeah. oversupply. And you say, well, how much does it cost? And you study a lot of producers, which I have done, and then you, you look at the pricing data. What you realize is the price sort of rumbles between 2 to $4 with obviously lots of volatility because it costs the marginal producer, I think, around $3 to get it out of the ground. And there's a sort of gravitational pull back to that point, which I could be wrong on, of course, but there's a gravitational pull back to that point. So you can kind of scope out a range of pricing. And I thought, well, because everyone thinks it's uninvestable, is there a way to find the player that has the right balance sheet, that has the right management, that has the right reserves in place to produce at a price that's profitable under all scenarios and that carries no balance sheet risk and has great capital allocation? I tell you now, I had to kiss a lot of frogs to find CNX. <laughs> that whole listed place is filled with some really irrational actors. And some of it's incentives caused by the people who invest and allow them to have certain incentive schemes. And, you know, they're not bad people. It's just, it's not an industry that's been set up for Buffett-like capital allocation because it's the volatility and, and various other things. So I found CNX. CNX has got more than 160 years of history. It started off as consolidation coal, which is as it sounds. It's just they consolidated a load of coal assets in the Appalachian region that were disparate before. And, and really, it's gone through lots of really poor management. They've done the wrong thing at the wrong time and had issues with liquidity. But it just so happens that their acreage sits above the most productive shale strata for gas in the US. The Appalachian region, the average well now that's sunk, this is not the CNX wells, which are even more productive. The average well that's sunk there is somewhere between three to 10 times more productive than the other shales, which means that for a given drilling cost, and it costs the same to drill in all these places, roughly speaking, if you're mildly efficient, for the same drilling cost, they can divide that capital cost between vastly more amount of gas, which means, hypothetically speaking, on a unit cost basis, you could find a low-cost producer in that region. So I sort of thought, again, with an intent to try and stop my obsessional nature to study everything, let's try and focus again on something that I have the time to do. I just studied all of the Appalachian producers, both listed and unlisted, because I realized halfway through, you can get the drilling and production data from the regulator. So I've got individual well data as they're drilled. It's absolutely amazing for someone who likes that kind of thing and finds it useful in the analysis. After studying all the Appalachian producers, I figured out a way to put them all on a level playing field in terms of full cycle cash costs, which very few of them really state on a purely objective basis, I would argue. But you know, who am I? They've been doing it for decades. Anyway, the way that I digested the data, CNX, the lowest cost producer in the lowest cost basin in the US. They can produce, I think, they're all in cash unit costs are about 135 per thousand cubic feet. And the nearest producers in the Appalachian Basin is up around $2. And then the rest of the industry is sort of 3 to $4 to keep supply in line with demand. So I suppose what I realized is CNX are profitable under all scenarios, even the sort of horrendous troughs you get when people are sort of venting gas into the atmosphere because there's not enough capacity in the pipelines. <laughs> if you think about it, that's a remarkably low risk 
business, if they're profitable under all scenarios, assuming they've got the right balance sheet and management that are rational. And so Nick took over in 2014. He managed to spin off all the coal assets and liabilities, which created this wonderfully focused natural gas business, and managed to also double his acreage in the Marcellus shale in, in Appalachia, which is this highly productive shale, right at the bottom of the cycle by buying some assets off Dominion Energy. And he brought the chap who wrote The Outsiders in as his chairman, Will Thorndike. And Will Thorndike sort of wrote one of the best books, I think, on wonderful capital allocators, Henry Singleton, John Malone, Warren Buffett, those guys. And Nick is also a sort of disciple of Buffett and Mungo. And you can see it in his letters. He's always quoting them and talking about good capital allocation and managing the business for long term. And what Nick did is he put together enough acreage to satisfy on a recoverable reserve space, 200 years of supply at current production rates. So they don't need to bother buying speculative land and feeding the machine with high-priced land. They've got all they need. It's about turning that into cash. They're the lowest cost producer at turning into cash because they've got engineering excellence, which you know is a whole other story. But they also have acreage in the most productive place in the US, a structural cost advantage, which you can't replicate. And then on top of that, you layer this business, which has gone through a, a whole balance sheet engineering exercise to kick all the maturities off, most of them sort of 2029, 20, 2030, but also a programmatic hedging program so they hedge out five to six years. So you kind of know what they're going to produce because they haven't had a dry well for years and years and years. And they're just drilling incrementally in this, this vast sort of 4 million acres they've got. You know what prices they're going to get. You know they've got the lowest costs in the industry. You know they've got no issues with liquidity because you know the cash flows are going to generate because you know production and pricing. And so he's kind of out of what, what would seem to be a disastrous industry with peaks and troughs and terrible capital allocation, too much debt. He's created this wonderful annuity machine which is completely misunderstood. And because it's completely misunderstood, the shares are currently trading on a normalized 26% free cash flow yield at the moment. And they've got a bunch of tax losses, which means they're not going to pay any tax for five or six years too. And the market doesn't understand it. So what do Nick and Will do? They go, oh, what did Henry Singleton do when his shares were undervalued? Buy them back in droves. So over the yeah. last couple of years, they managed to buy back their shares. 25% of their shares outstanding, 30% free cash flow yield. Uh, and really, they're just getting started. So when you sort of roll forward a starting 26% free cash flow yield, and then with somewhere between, I think, 50 to 80% of cash flow being diverted for buybacks on a price which seems to be sinking by the day, you roll the maths forward on that, and you're getting enormous multiples for your intrinsic value. I think it's worth somewhere between three to 20 times, depending on how many shares they can buy back, how quickly, and at what price they get. And that's yeah. just like a three-year model. They can keep pounding out this cash annuity for years and years and years and years and years. It seems to me like in an industry which is labeled uninvestable, what I found is an incredibly low risk, high return investment with sensational leadership. And so that's why it's my largest position. Not to uh, downplay the attractiveness here, but just for completeness, I think I should mention the, that 26% free cash flow figure. I presume it's when the hedges rolled off. So, I mean, current free cash flow yield is more like 12 or 13%. But by the time we get to 2026 or 2027, as you say, I can imagine the share count is going to be potentially as much as 20 or 30% lower than it is today. So when I say that number, it's the sort of earnings power. So if you look at the guidance for this year, so last year they did about 700 million pounds of earnings. That was a more normalized year. This year, if you look at the guidance, they're very conservative with how they talk to people. Might be because they want to buy back the shares, I don't know. You take the little bands of the variables they've given, they've chosen all the worst parts of the bands to give you the free cash flow guidance. And they've also not failed to highlight, but they haven't banged the table about the fact they're putting in 
pipelines that are going to last 50 to 70 years and service the next three decades at least of production. If you're just expensing all of the gross capex this year, you're missing the underlying free cash flow yield. So if you put it on a maintenance basis, it's actually 25, 26% at the moment. And you adjust for the overly conservative bounds that they've given us this year and the reduced production rate. So you're right, I should have explained that better. Something about this process and to hear the excitement in your voice as you discuss the per well data. I mean, such a research intensive approach. I guess it doesn't particularly scale very efficiently with one individual. When you think about the longer term of Fugin, let's sort of dream a bit about the distant future. How do you see the fund or how would you like to see the fund evolve over time? I mean, do you imagine something more like Phoenix or or Berkshire that sort of gets more into the businesses over time or more like an El Bulli kind of, you know, this is what we do and we're focused on being the very best at it, but keep it simple. How do you see things potentially evolving? If I was being honest, I would say I don't know, but I don't want to say I don't know because it'll sound like I'm being flippant. <laughs> uh, you can say you don't know. That's okay. When I quote someone smarter than me, so was it Roosevelt that said, plans become a prison, but planning is useful. I just want mispriced assets that I'm fairly sure will eventually be priced correctly or able to be realized in terms of what I think the intrinsic value is. So, And I have a completely unconstrained strategy. So I could have private businesses in there. I could have convertible bonds. I could have physical gold. I have no plans to have physical gold. I find it difficult to find the intrinsic value of such a thing. But I suppose what I'm going to do, or the covenant I feel as though I have my investors, is to find mispriced assets and make sure that they're mispriced and then invest accordingly. And I'll go wherever those mispriced assets are. I think about the people who back me from the beginning, some child effectively saying, hey, I think I can invest internationally and someone handing over their sort of hard-earned wealth. That's the person I want to do a great job for, the person that backed me from the beginning. So if nothing else, I just don't want to get too big because if I get too big, it'll affect returns and I'll sort of be selling those people out. So it's really about staying small and nimble and getting the highest risk adjusted returns. Everything else is just details. It would be really interesting to hear, given the seat that you have had, something that you've taken from observing this group of people led by Gary that is perhaps surprising or would be surprising for those on the outside. So not the conventional stuff necessarily, but something by virtue of your unique position that you think would be surprising to outsiders. We achieve some quite good outcomes in difficult situations through extreme autonomy. I don't know how else to put it. We hire really great people who are emotionally intelligent and care about the mission we're on, which is to make awesome returns for investors. And then we try and do the smart things at the right times and we allow people just to get on with it. We've had effectively exceptional results from having no strict plans, no strict structure, and absolutely no hierarchy. A lot of people I speak to, they talk about strict process and tram lines and hierarchy and very specialized jobs as a positive. And that can be a positive. There are certain things that's wonderful for. But the way we've achieved a lot of success is, is hiring awesome people and allowing them to be awesome, which involves a lot of freedom. You said earlier... You referred a couple of times to your obsessional nature and you're quite clear that you want to study everything you do in great detail. How do you avoid overcomplicating things and being able to see the wood from the trees? I try and say to some of the younger guys coming through is you have like an analyst toolkit 
figuratively speaking. And every business you study, every opportunity you study, every book you read, everything you experience, it's kind of an opportunity to add to that toolkit. There's little shortcuts and little ways of thinking about the world, mental frameworks, ways to avoid disaster, whatever it is, lessons. They can do a couple of things. They can reduce errors, but they can also save you a lot of time. I can't give you my toolkit. It's a really sort of nebulous thing. So you've just got to get to work and grind it out and study the world. And eventually you'll develop loads and loads of shortcuts, which stop you from wasting time on dead ends and which stop you from studying things that are not important to the investment case. I'm learning more and more that patience is just one of the most wonderful attributes to have in this job. And it applies to every part of it, which includes getting better. You can't just read you know, Snowball, which is about Warren Buffett and say, well, I know how to do it like him. There is something special about over time, grinding it out, studying the world and getting these shortcuts, which makes you more efficient. But it's not for people with short attention spans, that's for sure. <laughs> we've talked about a French luxury goods stock and we've talked about a North American natural gas producer. I'm a UK man, UK equity man. I just wanted to talk about a holding that you have in your fund called Likewise. It's a great business and you know who knows about flooring distributors. Is there someone? I didn't know there was someone that sits between the manufacturers and the retailers, but there is. And then the more you get into it, the more you realize that the flooring industry in the UK, that there's always been a certain percentage that's independent, these sort of mum and pop shops to sort of spring up on the high street and get these quite large local market shares. And the reason that they're able to do that and actually often undercut the prices of the, the carpet rights or the tappies or the SCSs is because they have this amazing distribution a logistics engine behind them, which is Headlam. This massive network of giant warehouses, 3D warehouses, because they think about 3D storage for rolls of carpet and vinyl and whatnot, supplying them all next day, amazing trade terms that help with their cash flow and super, super high reliability because the flooring needs to get there exactly when it's needed. Otherwise, it ruins the whole project. So the more I thought about the retail end and the customer, and the more I realized how important and how competitively advantaged on a local economies of scale basis the Headlam was. And then I sort of inspected the story, which is Tony at Mr. Brewer, should I say, at Headlam. That was, I think, 26 years. And he pretty much built that business from scratch. No one's ever consolidated you know, more than probably 5 or 6% of that market. And he took a very large chunk of it, you know, 30 odd percent in quite a, a rapid pace of time. And he did it through roll-up. And he did it through roll-up, paying wonderful prices and extracting massive synergies. When have you ever seen a roll-up go like that? Genuinely sustainable, high returns, cash returns on capital, almost never. They're normally just growth stories that people pump out to the market and then they fall over. So there's evidence of truly wonderful operational expertise. And then a couple of meetings with Headlam and you realize that he's one of those sort of quietly confident, incredibly effective people, workaholics. And I thought, wow, this is an over-operated long-term great. And no one realizes it. And it's trading on, what was it, nine times earnings when we bought it or something like that with a bunch of cash on the balance sheet. You know, this industry doesn't change much. And I couldn't see any change to the retail end of the market. The independence was still hyper-competitive. Tappy was putting carpet right out of business, which is another interesting story, actually. But it just felt like you've got something which isn't going to change much and you've got the best in the business and no one really realizes that. And it pumps out loads of cash and you get a lot of it back as dividends. So I thought it was great. We made an investment, took it through all the processes and stuff after a lot of mystery shopping and, <laughs> and, and visiting. A lot of cars. <laughs> well, I got a lot of quotes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we went through that, we bought it. And then very shortly after we bought it, Tony was effectively shuffled out by the board. 
who didn't like his approach to the business, which he built. I have some theories about what happened and how it happened that I don't want to go into here, but I felt it was grossly unfair to shuffle him out of that business in, in the way they did. And obviously, we don't just on a binary basis, the manager leaves, we sell a business. I obviously went back to the drawing board and thought, well, what is this? Can it survive without the person that's built it? Let me just meet with management. Let me meet with the board, understand the strategy, what are they doing? The board went on this acquisition binge, which made absolutely no sense at all. I remember sitting in one of the analyst meetings where they were talking about this ceramic tile, effectively middleman that they bought, which was next to their London HQ, by the way. Massive price, huge earn out. And most of their business came from the Battersea power station. There's just this a massive amount of risk, high price they paid for. It. And it just, none of it made sense anymore. So we sold the position. We made some money, but it was it was a pyrrhic victory because I thought I had this wonderful business run by a, a sensational manager. And Tony was, in his usual, incredibly professional and understated way. You know, he was very gracious about his exit and said he was off for new challenges. And, you know, he had this sort of two-year non-compete. So I, I sort of kept tabs on him because not yeah. many people do what he's done in any industry with those kind of cash returns, sustainable cash returns on capital. So he went off to help a friend out in South Africa, a flooring distributor called Likewise, would you believe? No association now, of course. And then after his non-compete was up, I have some alerts set on the company's house, this sort of Likewise business popped up. I thought, oh, that's very interesting. And so I kept in contact with him to understand what was happening there. And, and eventually it came to market. It initially listed on the TIS exchange, which is a, it's got some interesting businesses on that one. And then they ended up moving to AIM recently. And over the course of going public, there were multiple sort of capital raises. Look, we've negotiated this amazing acquisition of this owner-operated business, which has got 90% local market shares and we're raising money for it. And I'd waited years and years and years to invest with him, but the price they were raising capital at, it just didn't meet our criteria. Great business, sensational leadership, but price wasn't right there. So I had to let all these opportunities to invest pass me by. And I was terribly worried that, you know, fear of missing out, as they say, which is not the right way to think. I always go back to the numbers and make sure I've got the right margin of safety and stuff. So you've got to be willing to let stuff go to make really good investments. So yeah, I just sort of waited patiently, kept tabs on Tony kept making sure I was included in the loop of there were corporate actions just in case. And and it just, lo and behold, a liquid stock. People are worried about the cycle as if it's the first time a cycle ever came around and it doesn't pop back at some point. And the stock sold off down to close to book value. And I thought, wow, that's an amazing opportunity to get in business with what is Headlam from scratch again, while he's competing against a much weakened Headlam that's been doing very, I would say, very poorly on an underlying basis in the UK for three or four years now. So I suppose the thesis is you've got the guy who created Headlam pretty much from scratch. And guess what? A lot of the staff from Headlam are now sort of jumping ship and going to likewise. And they bring with them decades of relationships with local carpet retailers and other flooring businesses and contractors and stuff. So I've seen this happen before in other industries. And actually, the example I talked about before, Tappy, which is run by Lord Harris, who set up Carpet Right and ended up getting sort of shuffled out of that. He's done exactly the same thing. You end up setting up, you know where where the best parts of the business are, you know how it works, you know what happens when it doesn't work well. And so you just know where the soft underbelly is and you create a business starting with the low-hanging fruit. And and eventually, if you don't have a good leadership team in there, you end up taking everything. So I suppose the way that I observe the competitive reality is likewise, is going to eat Headlam's lunch in in a very meaningful way and is doing so. Although Tony would never say that. He'd say, oh, there's plenty of food on the table for everyone. Yeah, (laughs) It's as you say earlier, you're backing the jockey rather than the horse. If you think about it, it's not actually the correct analogy because in business, if you whack the right jockey on a horse, it turns the horse into something completely different over time. You know, yes. you can almost change the DNA of the horse on which the business okay. jockey is yeah, riding. Yeah. 
It's been a very interesting conversation and thank you. Um, continue to watch with great interest how you and your fund develop. You've given us a lot of food for thought and it's been very worthwhile, very interesting. Thank you. And thank sure. you, David, for your contribution. James, that was really enjoyable. Thank you so much. You're both very welcome. It's been good fun and hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.